Hello, a little intro to the intro. Apologies, this episode was meant to go out much sooner than I'd anticipated. Thank you for your patience. It's a bit of an epic ramble. Um, I've tried to trim it down as best I could. It's an overview of the Gauntlets Trophy tabletop role-playing game Kickstarter. Now, I'm pretty sure it's still live for a couple more weeks. So at least I haven't missed the deadline for you to jump on it if you want to. There's also a bit at the end about ZineQuest 2 and what's on offer from a few members of the OSR Anchorite community. About bloody time and all. He was slinging pawns at a B&B when he had an epiphany. And they complained about time too about not playing the NDE. It was free to all, and I heard him say he bought my Borderlands. But just sit back and let Spencer do his trick, cause you're incapable AMs. Hey, it's me. Sorry it's been so long. Um, thanks, TJ. I'm Spencer, aka Free Thrall. This is Keep Off the Borderlands, and I had intended to put this episode together before my little trip down south. Yes, I have left behind the idyllic town of Granton on Spey, capital of the Cairngorms in the beautiful Scottish Highlands, and I've come down to smoggy old Essex, and I'm spending three weeks, almost, with my parents. So, yeah, um, <laughs> things were just a bit up in the air before we left. My wife is actually heading off to Thailand, for a couple of weeks because I've got a three-year-old daughter and uh, my physical condition means that I do need assistance uh, taking care of my daughter and myself. So, you know, one mustn't grumble. You'd think that, you know, with the cat away, the mice will play, but um, I think it's going to be a struggle finding a quiet alcove in which to game and even record podcast material. So uh, things may get a bit gorilla over the next few episodes if I do, in fact, manage to put anything out. But um, that's enough about me. Let's have a listen to what some other folks have to say. Yo, Spence, I had to call in when you started talking about Dragon Heist. <laughs> I haven't read the Alexandria review or whatever. Sorry, I'm bad with talking. But I think I would largely agree with it. I think it's a ridiculous adventure. There's not a heist in it. I that's It's misleading. I think it's so stupid. I've gotten in a couple debates with Mike Shea, the Lazy DM, about it. Because he called it a really good adventure. And then has a multi-part YouTube series on all the changes he had to make to it to make it playable 
And so say, he also did that with Tomb of Annihilation. And so I, I think if something is a great adventure, you don't have to make changes to make it playable. Yes, you make changes to make it your own, but not to the basic structure to make it just a playable adventure. So anyway, man, uh, that's it for me. Hey, Joe, great to hear from you, man. That's Joe Richter of Hindsightless and Wheel or Woe podcast. Yes, funny, I recently saw that Andy Goodman of Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks recently posted a link upon the Audio Dungeon Discord from the Alexandrian essentially fixing Dragon Heist by filling in uh, what he saw as uh, plot holes in order to make it playable. I haven't actually read the article, but I, I urge you, Joe, to check it out if you want to learn more about that. And anybody with a remote interest in RPGs would do well to check out the Alexandrian blog post anyway. But thanks again, Joe. As I say, I'm not actually familiar with the Dragon Heist adventure myself. It was just something that I'd read from the Alexandrian and I had seen it kind of touted as a good 5e adventure. But I'm sure there's stuff in there that might be problematic for some GMs, might not be perceived as a problem for others. But like I say, there I go, putting out third-hand information while not being particularly well-informed about it myself. Next up, I've got a bunch of calls from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast. And I know most of what he talks about here, he's actually explored in his own episode where he does a play report on the um, Doshio game, I believe it's called, and why he, why he chose that over Bushido. But he makes some interesting points about procrastination, which is a subject well, it's something I'm uh, very well acquainted with. Hey, Spencer, Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Really enjoyed the latest show where you did the call-ins and you talked a little bit about anxiety and Josh called in and talked about anxiety. I won't say that I suffer from anxiety, but um, I'm definitely a procrastinator, like, kind of like you mentioned you are, and especially with rules-heavy games. So, as you know, I've run different, you know, a number of different systems over the years. I've run Barbarians Lemuria and um, Best Left Buried, ICRPG. I've run various flavors of, well, I, I've run various flavors of basic D&D. I've run um, Savage Worlds. I've run, I don't know, I've run a bunch of stuff. But, you know, what I haven't run is Bushido, and that's kind of why I'm calling because what you talked about, about procrastinating and putting it off and worrying about it, is where I'm at with Fushido. In fact, I'm supposed to be running Bushido on Saturday, and I'm not going to do it. I am going to run the adventure. I have a Samurai adventure planned. I'm happy with the adventure. I'm not worried about running a game, even though, you know, I've got some big names sitting at the table. But... I'm, I'm worried about running Bushido because it's a pretty rules-heavy game. It, it's a pretty complicated game. 
I was supposed to have pre-gens for everybody, and I kept putting off making pre-gens, and they were going to be higher-level characters. And Yoshida's, it's tough to make higher-level characters because even though you have levels, you have to, the way you increase skills and attributes is by training. And it takes like X amount of time to train up and things like that. So I would basically have to come up with like a four-year plan and a four-year game time and back plan like all the training stuff. And that was just breaking my mind. But I don't want to let the guys down. I want to run a game and I want to run this adventure I've designed, the Samurai Adventure, because I think it's going to be a fun adventure. So I let everybody know that I was facing this, this you know, not feeling ready to run Bushido. And, you know, this is the second time I've done this to poor Shandy Andy. Shandy Andy is the reason I'm supposed to be running Bushido, because he's always wanted to play it. And this is the second time I've let him down, and I do feel bad about that. But anyway, I said I'd be happy to run the adventure with a, rule, a lighter rule system. And everybody very kindly agreed to that. I'm sure they're probably all crushed, you know. But, but they very kindly agreed. And Pete Jones, Dragons Are Real, recommended Dashio by Seven Deep, which is a one-page game. And, it, and it's a really light game, but I think it'll actually work better for my adventure than Bushida would have. So actually, I think it's going to work out really well. And I'll talk about all this on my Saturday episode of um, Nerds RPG Variety Cast, because I'll play the game before I release the episode. So I'll give a quick review how the game went. But I am still going to run Bushido. I, I'm not going to let Shandy Andy down another time. But I've changed my mind. I'm going to run first level characters. And we're going to use the full system. We'll use magic and monsters and all that. I've got a bunch of first level adventures for Bushido. So I'll just run one of those. And I'll, I'll work with the people. We'll make characters up. And it, it's going to be okay. And he'll get to finally play Bushido. And I'll get over the, the fear of screwing up these higher level characters as I build them, because I'm not really sure how to do that. I mean, I'm sure I could do it, but I, I dread doing it, you know? So, anyway, I just want to let you know, you're not alone in feeling that kind of procrastination and desire to put it off. So, talk to you later. Thank you for those messages, Jason. Um, yeah, the point of procrastination, and, you know, I hear you struggling there with the Bushido rules and the the fact that you wanted to do characters at, um, was it fourth level? Sounds like quite an involved process just to create some pre-gens. But uh, yeah, for me, it things don't even have to be rules heavy. In fact, um, I wonder whether, you know, there is procrastination. Procrastination is a part of that for me. Also, I think it's just the availability, the sheer plethora of PDFs I've got because it doesn't have to be rules heavy that I find, well, maybe not daunting. Perhaps this is more of a, a focusing attention issue for me. And, and I'm pretty sure I've spoken about this before and I'm sure that Josh Beckelheimer, JB Publishing, spoken about this too but just knowing that I have a wide variety of rules at my fingertips means that I can sit down read through some rules that I feel I'm interested in 
and I'll come to something that doesn't sit quite right with me. And at that point, it's all too easy for me to open up another PDF of something very similar to see if that handles whatever I'm either struggling with or not liking to see if that is dealt with in a different way. And if that is the case, then I might continue reading and come up against something else. Before I know it, I've attempted to read five or six different rule sets and not completed reading any of them. And actually, this issue comes up with the review, well, overview of Trophy Gold that I uh, that I wanted to share. I do come up against those kind of sticking points, but because I decided to make an episode about it, I pushed on through, and I'm glad that I did, because um, I think I got a better grasp of what I was initially struggling with just by reading on. But you'll hear all about that in a moment. So I don't want to dwell on that, but thank you very much for your calls, Jason. And that session of Doshio, um, I was listening to Dave of Deeper Centile talking about it. Sounds like he had a great time. And I would imagine that a good time was had by all. So I'm glad that all worked out for you. Anyway, on to the next call. Hey up, Spencer. Just finished listening to your latest episode. And I was going to send you a message, but then um, I couldn't find your podcast on Anchor. And I was beginning to panic. It, it wasn't on my list or anything. And it turned out, I don't know what's happened, but for some reason it's been unfavorited. And I definitely didn't do it. So if you're wondering why you got a message saying, Shandy Andy has unfavorited your podcast, it was an accident if I did do it. Either that or I, I blame Anchor myself. Uh, anyway, I better get on to my message. Um, I'll, start a new, uh, I'll start a new message for that. So, Spencer, what I was actually messaging you about was, um, and make sure you sat down at this stage. I don't want you, you know, getting worried or anything. But should, just should you decide to run some into the odd for us, um, you know, anything that we can do to help, you know, if it'll um, ease your anxiety or anything, please let us know. You know, um, I mean, I had a lot of anxiety when I tried to run my RuneQuest uh, Glorantha online for the first time. Um, but I have to say, the players, Aaron, um, Carl, uh, Colin and Pete, were just, just superb. You know, that they, they they didn't say anything when it was a bit clunky. When I, you know, if I made any mistakes of that, they were very gracious. And I think if you're going to run something, this is the community to do it in. Because people are so enthusiastic and so helpful. Shandy Andy from B52 there. Now, I wasn't going to share that first part of the message but I figured I figured it would make sense to do so because I mean it's something that I've certainly done in the past anybody using Anchor I'm sure you've come across this phenomenon when you're listening to an episode if you hit that back button you'll notice it's very close to the favorite button and it is very very easy to unfavorite a podcast when you back out of it 
unfortunately, it doesn't notify you. It doesn't notify the podcaster. So you don't actually discover it's been done until it comes to wanting to leave a message again. I know I've certainly done it, and I've seen people kind of refavorite my podcast that I know have been listening and calling in. So uh, happens all the time, Andy. Um, but as for your really, really kind message, your offer of support, and uh, one of the great things about this community is, you know, just talking about this stuff, sharing this stuff with a very supportive bunch of people, really good folks. And and I know people who've run games for years, uh, but have found the prospect of running something online quite daunting. So I know I'm not alone in, uh, you know, my concerns about how, uh, how well that's kind of come across. Also, you've got the added joys of... Uh, technology as marvelous as it is it doesn't always do what you want when you want it to do it and we're all accustomed to teething troubles there so i mean that's not really something to worry about either because there's always some work around but i really really appreciate your message and uh yeah just talking about this stuff getting this stuff out it does alleviate that pressure that you put on yourself when you're kind of bottling these things up. You know, not just the knowledge that other people feeling the same way, but the simple act of sharing it, just putting it out there, really does help. So thanks again, Andy. So now to the review or overview, let's say. That's probably more accurate. Um, of Trophy Gold by Jesse Ross. Now this is part of a Kickstarter that's been running since, um, I guess, the last week or so of January. That's been put up by the Gauntlets, uh, Jason Cordova. Um, but the game itself is written by Jesse Ross. Initially... It appears that some folks at the Gauntlet were very big fans of the Simbroom uh, setting, but were not overly keen on the rules, which I understand are a little bit fiddly, but they set out to create something that was much lighter with a similar tone, taking the initial inspiration from... Cthulhu Dark and anyone familiar with that will recognise a lot of stuff here apparently there's also some bits of uh, Blades in the Dark that have been incorporated into the rules I'm not familiar with Blades in the Dark so much so I'm not sure what influence that has had but I must say the majority of its workings are very similar to the extremely light rules of Cthulhu Dark. Now this initial game that they came up with was called Trophy Dark. Essentially a system designed for one-shot games 
where the players are doomed from the outset. They are working towards finding a particular treasure, a particular prize. The process of doing that is also their undoing. Much the same as, say, a one-shot Cthulhu game would work, I imagine. So, yeah, so, and that's, yeah, that's dark. Gold is then taking those rules and attempting to apply them to create an OSR-style game. Essentially, turning it for rules intended for a one-shot into rules for campaign play. The way the rules are presented does seem quite abstract, but at the same time they are very clearly explained and I can see exactly what they're intended to do, which which is very helpful for me. I mean, understanding why something is the way it is is key to me for understanding how it works. When I say the rules are abstract... For instance, a good example of that is um, currency. There's no real currency in the game. You do have a gold value. Uh, rather than that being a value of gold coins, that is a number, I believe, from one to six, which represents the value of items you acquire while you are treasure hunting. And as treasure hunters much the same as Into the Odd. You are treasure hunting out of necessity. You have debts. You have a drive to be doing this. It's a a risky endeavour. And you are quite cleverly provided with an impetus. You can roll for a particular drive, which, which suggests what you are ultimately seeking in your you know, in your questing. But also, this gold value works towards essentially the upkeep of being a treasure hunter. So it's it's kind of like a balancing act rather than you accruing gold pieces or items and then selling them. Essentially got a gold value that just goes up and down depending on what's occurring within and between adventures so as i say even though it's quite an abstract way this is presented it's quite clear what it's setting out to simplify so essentially you've got these sort of living expenses and depending on how much how successful you are as a treasure hunter depends on whether you're accruing more debt or whether you're managing to scrape by what you set out to take with you on adventures impacts on this so if you choose to take combat equipment you know armor weapons that will increase the level of upkeep that is required for you to go on adventures that debt is uh, is called a burden so you have these responsibilities that your gold takes care of in between adventures. That's if you're successful. Otherwise, you accrue more debt, which means that the next adventure, 
you require to take more risks, perhaps, possibly accruing even more of a burden by being better equipped. So it's a real kind of balancing act. It is something I like to see in a game. Um, there are a couple of interesting touches as well that I really like. Combat is very dangerous, but killing monsters can be very profitable and monsters can be harvested for parts or items that they might possess. So it does make sense for you to be as proficient or at least equipped to deal with combat. Also magic, anyone can learn a spell, but this increases a value you've got called ruin. Now you start off with one ruin and once you reach six ruin, you are dead or you've gone mad or you you become incapacitated in some way or another and it's time to create a new character so spells can be learnt but for every spell you know your ruin is increased by one um, another thing I really liked is that players compile their own bestiary you can create your own monsters quite easily it's also possible to roll them up randomly the idea being that the characters are confronting the unknown they don't know what kind of creature they're dealing with all they get is a description and they are required to name it write down features if they successfully kill it what aided them and also you know what special attacks they might have observed and and therefore the next time they encounter that creature they're going to be at an advantage so that's quite nice in that every group playing will have a unique bestiary and i do love that's one of the things that draws me to a game like best left buried is that emphasis on the unknown and the horror of the unknown the daunting prospect of not knowing what you're going to come up against. Uh, so, uh, yes, I do like that. But there is a point in the rules where there are three instances in which you are required to roll. The whole game is played with D6s. You want, say, three light-coloured D6s and three dark-coloured D6s, or more, depending on how many people are playing actually yeah you probably want at least one dark die for the amount of people playing and each player probably needs two light die and this is where the rules seem to cross a line for me now this might be completely arbitrary because I'm quite happy with the, the level of abstraction up to that point but when you're searching for Trevor, when you're when you're searching for treasure, <laughs> that unguarded Trevor again. Um, you roll one d six. If you've got any equipment or a particular skill that will aid you in your search, then you roll two dice. So if you roll a one, 
you lose a token and encounter something terrible. I'll explain tokens in a moment. If you roll a 2 or a 3, you encounter something terrible. If you roll a 4 or a 5, you take a token but encounter something terrible. And if you roll a 6, you take a token. Now these tokens represent treasure that you're finding. And as a player, you can convert that token into gold, put that down on your sheet, or you can wait until you've found three tokens and you can spend that to find the item that you are searching for. Now, for me, suddenly that takes... I don't know if I'm thinking about this correctly, but it seems that suddenly the players are in control of when and where treasure is found. To me, it's almost like the reverse of the quantum ogre idea. Instead of the GM, you know, funneling the players where they want them to be, the players are changing where things are based on where and when they want to spend their tokens. And I don't know, I don't know if I'm fully understanding that. I don't know if I'm thinking about that incorrectly. But it seems that it's one degree of abstraction too far for me. Now, and I, I don't say that as a criticism of the game. I just don't think I fully understand or maybe misinterpreting what's going on there. Because I'm quite happy with the other abstract elements of the rules. You know, I, I, I'm quite happy, you know, for a character's wealth to be just a number from one to six. And yet this idea of tokens being spent by the players to say whether there's gold, well, maybe not gold so much, but for them to be able to spend free tokens and find the ultimate treasure, the, the thing that they've been seeking. I don't know. It doesn't sit with the way I'm thinking. And perhaps it's how I'm thinking about it that needs to change. Right, so it's been a couple of days since I last spoke. I was uh, interrupted by my family. <laughs> but uh, actually, that's been going okay. I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but, um, you know, if I spend any period of time with my parents, usually anything more than a couple of hours, and you spot your teenage self waiting in the wings, waiting for their cue, Somebody says something mildly ridiculous and it's, uh, right, hold my top deck. I'll handle this. Um, so I've been trying to kind of keep a lid on that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it hasn't been so bad. So back to the review. I believe I was talking about the roles that players can do during play and how there's a level of abstraction there that I'm not entirely comfortable with. And I believe I discussed the hunt role 
was on to the combat role. Whenever players come face to face with a monstrosity, each player attempting to defeat a monster rolls 1d6 to determine their weakness. Then you gather a bunch of the dark d6, one for each treasure hunter involved in the attack. When the attack pool is rolled, it's only the two highest d6 that count as the attack. And to defeat the monster, you must roll over their endurance. Now, their endurance is a number anywhere between 2 and 12. Uh, This number may be increased or reduced depending on circumstances. Now, regardless whether or not the creature is defeated, if any of those dice show the number equal to the player's weakness, then the players incur one point of ruin. Now, alternatively, you can sacrifice a piece of armour for ruin. And those bits of armour are then removed for the rest of that particular adventure. Or until they return to town, which I guess is essentially the same thing. If the monster isn't defeated and you wish to continue the attack, you add one more dark die to the attack ball. So you have a better chance of rolling a higher number, but also you have a greater chance of incurring ruin by a die matching your weakness. Interestingly, um, if a player wants to retreat from combat, their weakness number is passed on to any player remaining in combat, which increase their chances of their weakness coming up. Right, so your weakness or your ruin, rather, doesn't increase by more than one, even if there are multiple die showing your weakness number. So, that's the bit of abstraction there that, I don't know, it might work quite well in practice, but um, I'm not sure how I feel about it reading it here. And then you've got risk rolls. When you attempt a risky task, say what you hope will happen, and ask the GM and the other players what could possibly go wrong. So essentially the risk roll is very similar to the hunt roll in that you take 1d6, you add 1d6 if you have a skill, background or some item that is going to aid you, and you take another d6 for accepting what's called a devil's bargain, and that I will explain in a moment. You may also add dark coloured dye to this roll if you're willing to risk body or mind in order to succeed in the task. These these risk rolls also are what you'd be rolling when you're performing a ritual, casting a spell essentially. So if the highest dice is one to three, you fail, things get worse. GM describes how they may allow you to succeed in your task, but things are definitely not going to go in your favour. Four to five, you succeed, but there's some kind of complication. And six, you succeed how he described. 
if you included a dark die and it's equal to or it's the highest die rolled if it's higher than your current ruin your ruin increases by one working the same way as a sanity die works for Cthulhu Dark so yes what's this devil's bargain well let's read this the world is dangerous and treasure hunters take risks fueled by the folly of their pride to reflect this the GM or any other player can offer you a bonus light die if you accept a devil's bargain so devil's bargains include causing collateral damage or unintended harm getting lost or separated from your companions sacrificing an item or piece of treasure betraying a fellow treasure hunter attracting the attention of monsters or other creatures devil's bargain occurs regardless of the outcome of your role you make the deal you pay the price and get the bonus die the devil's bargain is always a free choice if you don't like one just reject it or suggest how to alter the consequences to something you might consider taking you can always risk your body and mind and take a dark die instead so essentially yes it's a advantage but it will have some negative impact on you or members of your party which i thought might lend itself to the hammer horror game i've not quite worked out how that would be implemented but the idea that there's a possibility for a character to choose a course of action that might force the party to split or create a division in some other way some other form of disunity within the group so as you can see almost everything you do there's a possibility of your ruin increasing and when your ruin reaches six you are lost to the wilds you have succumbed to forces beyond your control whether that means you're dead or you lose your mind you turn on the players or you do something self-destructive but essentially you meet your end as a character and you have to relinquish that character in some way or another and it's time to roll up a new one so i I, that's kind of where i got to in the rules um the the rest of it is essentially how to a, a sort of advice on creating a setting converting modules how to and in fact it includes a rather neat version of tomb of the serpent kings in the rule book which is certainly handy for testing the thing out so um yes i back this on kickstarter and um it looks looks very interesting so as i say you've got trophy dark which is the one shot doomed expedition trophy gold for running campaigns in a sort of grim dark osr style 
and Trophy Loom, which, as I understand it, is a system-neutral book uh, that presents tools for creating your own settings. At this stage, I believe that's the only part of the Kickstarter that is not available as a PDF currently, but I would imagine a lot of the stuff in there is present in some of the uh, the Codex zine issues. And yeah, so um, I wouldn't mind hearing your thoughts on the kind of levels of abstraction there. And it interests me why I find the things going on in the hunting role, the combat role, but not so much the risk role. That strikes me as a very interesting mechanic there. But there's something about those other two roles. It might be something that works perfectly well at the table. And um, I'm just struggling to envisage that. But um, I would like to hear your thoughts on um, abstract concepts in general when it comes to games like this, the simplification of uh, mechanisms and stuff. I mean, the simplicity is something that I'm very drawn to. But, obviously, you can hear that I'm struggling. (laughs) There's a point at which this steps over a a line of comfort for me. So, uh, yeah, any thoughts about that? I'd be very grateful to hear them. And I think that's going to be about it from me. Coming back to the subject of community at the moment, you know, having talked about Kickstarter, wanted to give a shout out to ZineQuest and uh, some of the folks in the community that have stuff up and running. Um, I've backed a few. Well, this morning I just I just backed Sinister Red, which is uh, Rudy of RPG Retrofits Zine, a vampire-infested land consisting of congealed blood, which looks fantastic. I didn't actually realise it was Rudy's until I saw Dave Aldridge back it. Now, Dave has also got his own Mud Harbour zine, which is a fantastic fantasy kung fu setting. Bright green zine, you can't miss it. And I was fortunate enough to play in a session of that just the other day, uh, which was really enjoyable. So, yes, I backed that one. Then we've got our very own Tim Schultz, Gottridge Manor, with his Hunters in Death zine, which also looks great, and I um, backed that in an instant, as soon as it popped up. Oh, and there was one other one by um, Shane Walsh, who created Woodfall. I don't know if you've seen that. I I haven't read it myself, but it's a fantastic-looking PDF. Um, His zine is called uh, Willow, which is basically a grim backwater village designed for where players have to solve a mystery in order to escape the village. Looks like a lot of fun. 
So, yeah, I mean, if there's anyone missing out, I realise there's several other episodes talking about Zine Quest at the moment. So I'm sure there's a few more that I need to check out. Um, but it's great to see stuff coming out of our little community. To me, that's what it's all about. I mean, you know, you want to call us OSR, indie, DIY, whatever. doesn't really matter. It's the community that's important. It's great to be able to give something back to something that I feel has given me so much. So there you go. Well, that's it. That's another episode. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your calls. Really appreciate those. Um, If you want to contact me, there's a link in the description. There's also a link for my email, spencer.3thrall at gmail.com and a link to T.J. Drennan's Patreon who provides all the great music. And it just remains for me to say, take it away, T.J. Warning, if celebrating the sound of dice hitting the table and pondering the meaning of the many acronyms within your player's handbook doesn't cure that burning sensation, please see your doctor.